and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is Dr. Carleen Gribble. Carleen is a adjunct association professor at Western Sydney University, where she specialises in infant feeding, child trauma, foster care and adoption. The reason I came across Carleen is through a study she did on a detransition woman and the deep regret and trauma her case study had after having a double mastectomy when this woman decided to have children. I wanted to explore this study with Carleen and why she wanted to examine this issue. In this episode, we discuss that study as well as her wider academic journey. For Carleen's mental health, we discuss the grief of losing her father when she was seven years old and how his death plunged her family into poverty and the impact that had on her mental health and her childhood. We also discuss her decision to have children at a relatively young age compared to today's society and the decision she made to adopt a Chinese three and a half year old and the journey she went on with her as a mother and how she developed this new relationship to the point where her adopted daughter is thriving today. We also discuss a hugely difficult period where Carleen was asked to adopt a second child by Child Protection Services, being told to give her back to the family who put her up and the roller coaster of a journey which developed and caused Carleen to have an incomplete grief for her. This is the first time I've explored the issue of adoption with someone who has done it herself, so I hope this educates you, the listener, about the issue and the system itself. So this is how my conversation with Dr. Carleen Gribble went. Carleen, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you for letting me check in with you all the way from Australia and making the time difference work. It is 9.05 here and I believe it's about 7pm your time. First off, how are you? How is your Sunday evening? Yes. <laughs> we just started the evening now, so yeah, but end of the weekend, got some work done, got some gardening done. Not bad, really. Excellent. I came across you through your study on that detransitioned woman, but I want to make this episode a holistic episode about you too. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Definitely. Let's go for it. I want to start your podcast, Carleen, by talking about your academic journey. So how did you first of all enter it? And when did you realise during your undergraduate degree in agriculture at the University of New England that this was a viable career path? Yes, I, I started my academic career studying agriculture. I have a Bachelor of Rural Science. And at the time, I was really interested in plants. And when I finished that, I moved on to studying for a PhD. But I got a bit diverted uh, because two years or so into my PhD, I had a baby and all of a sudden plants didn't seem so interesting anymore and it really took me off in a completely different direction. You then became interested in breastfeeding as an academic area and you began doing research on it and we'll come to this later in the pod but 
because you became a mother at a comparatively young age, I guess, in today's society, how did that experience shape your desire to look into this area? I just found it so fascinating. Before I had a baby, I hadn't really thought about breastfeeding. When I had my son, I was like, this is really fascinating. This is so interesting. I didn't know anything about this before. But the more I read, you know, I just headed down a rabbit hole, really, and just became more fascinated as I went along. And so I had to finish my PhD in plant physiology. But once that was done, I moved into doing research in breastfeeding. And I've carried on. I mean, I have branched off here and there along the way, but I'm still doing work in that area. The position that you ended up in academically wasn't a paid position, which has its obvious pros and cons. So what positives did it bring and what were the challenges? Yeah, so I've held an adjunct position at Western Sydney University for 20 years now. And I took up that position because at the time I had very young children, a couple of my kids, and we might talk about this later, are adopted and have had some pretty significant needs. And so career academia, full-time career academia was never going to work for me. So so I've had this unpaid honorary position at university and it's given me a lot of flexibility around what I do and the research that I conduct. And I think that that's borne fruit for me and it's been something I found very rewarding and I think it's been quite helpful. Like I think some of the research that I've done has been very helpful to other people. Like you mentioned there, Carleen, we're going to talk about your experience of foster care and adoption later in the pod but from an academic perspective you obviously do a lot of work on this too so what can you share in this area for my listeners because you know the adoption system from the outside seems across the board to be very bureaucratic and and difficult for prospective parents globally but I also think there's possibly a little bit of naivety in, in some of the interviews that I've seen with people who say you know I'm not I'm not ready to have a parent yet, but then when I do, I'll just I'll just adopt as if it's like some simple thing to do. So just tell me about your work in this and, and some of the challenges and, and some of the, the issues as well. It's a complicated area of work and practice. I think a lot of people think that adoption is really quite simple and it's not at all. It is complicated. We've moved, I think, you know, in countries like the UK and Australia from a place where particularly in the post-World War II space, it was really about people who wanted children and managing this social issue where it wasn't considered okay for women who weren't married to be having babies and it was thought that it would be better to take them from them and give them to married couples. I mean, it was a social experiment really. It was an absolute disaster. And we've moved from then in the UK and Australia not so much in the US, but to a way of, of looking at things that this is really about children, about you know, children should be with their family unless there isn't any other way for them to get good enough care. And so now when we look at adoption, it's predominantly for older children, children who've been in out-of-home care, who it's just been found that their parents aren't able to be supported enough to be able to look after them or other family members. And so you're dealing with children who've got a history of trauma. You're looking at a situation where there's an extended family. So when you adopt a child, you're also becoming connected to another family as well. And so, so there's lots of complications around that. I think, I mean, it makes for a richer life, but it's not always easy 
to be parenting a child that you didn't give birth to who's had a, a difficult time of things and it's a different sort of parenting it's a different sort of life but it's a good one I've certainly mm. it's one of the best decisions that you know that my husband and I ever made I think was to adopt our two daughters and for my research and some of the documentaries and articles that I've read Carleen I think for many children in care adoptive parents tend to prefer to adopt babies or, or very very young children perhaps under the age of two or three because they are perhaps more malleable they can be shaped more easily by them than say a four-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old does that preference cause a lot of you know obviously children who've come from very difficult backgrounds but good children to slip through the cracks well I don't, I don't know that I'd characterize children as good or bad but what I would say is that it can be easier to help children to parent children who are younger when they're placed into your family and you need to be mm. up for the job, really. And so not everybody is going to be in a position where they're going to be able to parent a child who's come into their family at an older age. You know, I guess it, it's going to be easier if children are younger. But, I mean, for a lot of people who come to adoption, they come to it because they've had a history of fertility issues and it's really... You know, you think about when you have a, a child that you're going to have a baby and so it can be a case of adjusting, you know, thinking about things differently. Or otherwise, yeah, like you say, a lot of people, they do just want the baby or toddler. Human nature, I guess. I want to move on to the reason which I came across you, Carleen, which was your study on a detransition woman and the mental health impact of her regret at her double mastectomy surgery, specifically when it comes to breastfeeding and childbirth. Now, before we discuss the study itself, how did you come to, or in my case, fall down the rabbit hole of this very controversial topic? Yeah, well, so my area of work is in something that's to do with female reproduction. So I think anybody who works in the in the area of female reproduction in, in any respect has had it, I guess, really come right in front of them, this intersection of sex and gender identity, and particularly around language. And so that's how I came into this space, because somebody had suggested to me that we shouldn't speak of breastfeeding mothers anymore, that we should speak of breastfeeding parents or, you know, similar sorts of um, desexed language. So I had looked into that. I thought, well, this is interesting and I understand what the concerns and the issues are. Let me see if I can find some solutions here. And so that took me, um, you know, a few years to kind of really get a good grip of, of what the issues were and, and potentially what some of the solutions might be and just how to address this in practical way in research but also for mm. health professionals and and that sort of thing and so just over 12 months or so ago I published a paper with some colleagues looking at the issue of, of sex and de-sex language in maternity so I had uh, some fantastic colleagues who work in obstetrics midwifery breastfeeding, nutrition and paediatrics. And we wrote a paper just addressing what some of the issues are when you de-sex language, when you're talking about pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and new motherhood and what sort of problems that can cause and what you might want to do to actually address the concerns of people who are wanting to make sure that 
people who have a gender identity which means that they don't want to be referred to as a woman or a mother are included and so in response to publishing that paper the woman who is in my case study paper about her experiences of having had a mastectomy to affirm a gender identity and later detransitioning and then having a baby she contacted me and we struck up a conversation because she was very keen I think to speak to somebody who understood why it had been so difficult for her. Before we talk about that, just tell me about how this issue around language plays out in the work you've done on, say, highly vulnerable women in places of war or natural disasters. So my areas of work have tended, around breastfeeding, have tended to actually be in situations where there's vulnerability. So One of my main areas of work is infant and young child feeding in emergencies. I also do work with breastfeeding and child protection, so women whose children have been taken into care or at risk of being taken into care because of concerns around their ability to care for their child, as well as women who are in prison, uh, issues around breastfeeding to do with that. And, you know, we spoke before about adoption and foster care too, so issues around I mean, a foster mother is, is also a mother and uh, and sometimes, but not necessarily seen as so. So these are all situations where the mother-child relationship is under some strain or in jeopardy in some way. And, and so, for example, a woman that I was interviewing for a study, all of her children were in out-of-home care. She had an intellectual disability. She loved her children, but she couldn't care for them. But she told me about how she was, you know, one time a caseworker told her in front of her daughter that she wasn't really a mother, she was just an incubator to her children. So these sorts of things, and, and similar in, in adoption, like there's a lot of controversy around the use of the term birth mother to talk about the mother whose child has been adopted and in fact, how that term has been used to marginalise those women. So it's almost as if, you know, you are a birth mother, you gave birth to the child, that's the extent of your relevance. And you can see, I I mentioned before, how US is really, I think, not doing great in terms of a lot of adoption practice. There are adoption agencies in the US that will, you know, on their websites, talk about pregnant women as birth mothers. Like they haven't even given birth, they're pregnant women. (laughs) (laughs) this is their baby they haven't relinquished this child they haven't even given birth to them and yet they're calling them birth mothers and you know by definition birth mothers don't have care of their children so it's very sensitized to how language can be used to undermine or support the mother-child relationship and very much you know aware of the need, particularly for the most vulnerable women, to use language that recognises their importance to their child. So when people were making suggestions, you know, that we replace the word mother with terms like gestator or even just parent, you know, so parent is, is not a word that has the same meaning as mother does in terms of emotion and connections and connotations. I was just really aware of what might be lost. And you can see how much power the word mother has when people are talking about surrogacy, the extent to which people will go to to avoid calling the woman who has gestated and birthed the baby as a mother. 
it's because they don't want to recognize her importance to the child. So, so yeah, so that's how I sort of ended up being quite passionate about this and, and very interested in, you know, how can we actually help people to understand what the issues are, what the potential risks are, and what we can do to mitigate against those. So I can't remember where your question started, whether I've actually answered it, ended up in some other place. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think you've answered it. So let's move on to the case study. So this woman transitioned a couple of decades ago when she was a teenager. She then had a double mastectomy when she was around 20 to 21 years old and then she detransitioned and she's now around her late 30s. So at the moment in the UK, you can get these type of surgeries once you're 18, which is the age of consent. Did her story make you change your view on the age of consent you can have these surgeries? And what is the situation in Australia? Well, in Australia, we don't have a minimum age for these surgeries. So... And, and they don't, you know, in other countries they don't either, in the US. So, so it's in the published literature from surgeons in the US that these chest masculinization mastectomies are being done on 13-year-olds. I know oh, at least of, yeah, it's quite something. And I'm sure that there are also young people in the UK who would be travelling overseas to get surgery in other countries as well. It would certainly be happening wouldn't be happening through the NHS. It's not happening through our government healthcare system in Australia. It's happening privately. So just how many, we don't we don't really know. But yeah, this woman, you know, she'd had surgery as a, as a 20-year-old and it hadn't gone well. There'd been complications with the surgery and I think that that contributed to her detransitioning not that long afterwards. But it was more than a decade later that she had a baby. And these are the things that I think really are not... When you've got a a teenager that's having surgery, I'm not quite sure what the stats are in the UK, but in Australia, the age of... You know, the median age at which women have their first baby is 30 years old. So for some... For some of these young people that are having surgery, they may have the surgery at 15 and it might not be another... You know, it could be another 20 years or 25 years before they decide maybe I want to have a baby and they get pregnant and they're in this position where they didn't think that they wanted to have a baby and they certainly weren't thinking about breastfeeding when they had this surgery at 15 years old. But all of a sudden they're presented with the situation where they're going to have a baby. They're not going to be able to breastfeed them. And they may or may remain transitioned or they may have detransitioned but irrespective, they're in a situation where they're going to have a baby who's going to expect to be breastfed <laughs> and, and it might be quite difficult for them to actually manage their emotions around all of that and they'll need good support. So that's why I wrote the paper. It's also the motivation of the woman whose case study I shared. I think she wanted to give a warning that decisions made when you're very young around this are you know, it's quite a permanent decision. This is not a surgery that can be reversed. But also that if you are in that position and you are experiencing feelings of grief and regret, that health professionals need to be supporting you and helping you to deal with that. Because she didn't have a good time of it, I think. She had a terrible time of it with the health professionals who were providing Mm. care to her. So she just wanted 
others like her to have better support. As a mother yourself, when you interviewed her and heard that pain and I guess all the contrasting emotions between the mastectomy, then pregnancy and then childbirth and her not being able to breastfeed her child. How hard was that for you to maintain a professional emotional balance? (laughs) Well, I I mean, it was very emotional. And I mean, in fact, like some of it almost took my breath away, really. I think the thing that was most difficult for me that I hadn't really thought about beforehand, and some of your listeners might not know this, but, but when a a healthy baby is born if they're just placed on their mother's stomach there's actually a set of instinctive behaviors that the infant will use to literally crawl up their mother's chest and find her breast and attach and breastfeed it's called the breast crawl it's a really amazing thing to see babies when they do this it's you know there's a whole package of instinctive behaviors that come into play that mean that they can do this and do it really well Well, when her baby was born, they were put on her stomach and, you know, was searching around for a nipple that wasn't there. And she talks about how, you know, in the early days of her child's life, that he spent a lot of time just hunting for her nipple and it it just wasn't there. And it was just, I mean, I think it really tore my heart out a bit for her baby, but also for her because she's having to to see her her child doing this and, and knowing that she can't she can't provide him what he's looking for and i mean she did really well i think a lot of people in that position their tendency might be to pull away and withdraw to try and avoid that pain and not to have skin to skin with their baby but she didn't do that she was able to tolerate the difficult emotions and to give that skin to skin to her child anyway and I think that that was a really important thing for both of them actually because particularly for women who don't breastfeed having that skin to skin is really important in terms of bonding and attachment and there's a whole heap of hormones that are released when that occurs that are really quite important so she did extraordinarily well but it was very emotional listening to her story and and hearing about those really I think quite fundamental difficulties that both she and her baby experienced because of the decision that she'd made a long time ago to have surgery. I'm going to play devil's advocate very briefly here before we reflect. So many on the other side of this argument would argue, Carlene, and the legitimacy of the statistics is a separate argument, but they would argue that, that the detransition rate is 1% to 2% from studies that they quote and people can go and question those studies if they want to. So therefore, perhaps they would argue, despite this very sad case, this should not stop trans people from receiving quote unquote gender affirming care, whether that be hormones or surgeries at whichever age they say they need it. What would you respond to that? My response would be that people should be making decisions based on evidence and actually healthcare should be being provided based on evidence and we really don't have any good evidence that these surgeries are beneficial to people's mental health we actually don't know what the detransition rate is but this is not just about detransition because I've seen a lot of people who retain a transgender identification who when they have a baby 
have real, you know, they're expressing regret and sadness around their inability to breastfeed. So it's not just about detransition. It's also about those who don't detransition. I think the thing that I found most shocking with this, and, and I don't necessarily have the answers, like I can't say what the policy should be or, or anything like that, but what I can say is that science is so poor and the claims that are made about the research that's been done are so overblown and the way that researchers speak about this is just so gobsmackingly incredible that I don't, I don't even think we need to go there yet. You know, we can talk about the things like, you know, a study being published where they had done surgery on 13 to 24-year-olds and or it might have been 14 to 24-year-olds, but young teenagers. And then three months later, they asked them, how do you feel about your chest? Do you feel better about your chest now that you've had this surgery? And they all said yes. First of all, they had like a 13% dropout in that three-month period. So they'd lost quite a lot of people out of the study in a really short period of time. But secondly, it was only three months. And yet these authors claimed that their research supported the idea that there should be no minimum age for the surgery. And not only that, it was published in a really prestigious journal, the second most prestigious paediatric journal in the world, JAMA Paediatrics. And it was published with an editorial saying that this study showed that this was necessary, beneficial health care. It's just, this is not normal. This is not something that you normally see. People should be really careful about the claims they make from research when it's published. And it's, it's not being made. And, you know, again, you've got surgeons speaking about doing mastectomy reversals. This was in a paper that was only published last week where they, you know, they reported on no people came back and asked for a mastectomy reversal. You can't reverse the surgery. It's not possible. This is an organ that has been removed. You can't get a transplant. If you put silicon in there, that's not replacing the organ. It's changing cosmetic appearance, but it's, it's not reversing the surgery at all. So... Yeah, it's, it's very strange. So there's just enough there to go, there's something badly wrong with what is happening here in the science and what's happening in terms of the practice. None of the organisations that provide guidance for these surgeries, so the World Professional Association for Transgender Health is the international one. We have one in Australia called OzPath. They don't say that they should discuss with people the impact of having chest masculinisation surgery on breastfeeding. It's not in their guidance. It's astounding. So, yeah, so there's just so much that's just so very clearly wrong. Where the right place is, I don't know, but there's just alarm bells all over the place. My final devil's advocate question on this is due to the size of your study. It's obviously only one woman so does that take away from the legitimacy of it because it is not a large sample size no it's a case study and and this is what you do when there's something new there's a new issue or there's something that's unusual is that that's the only circumstance under which you publish a case study and it's more to sort of point people to these are things that you might like to think about or these are things that you might like to consider I think As time goes on, there will be research that has 
more people in it. And that would be a good thing. I don't think that that's a bad thing at all. But I do think this is something, I mean, the reason why we published the case study is because there hadn't been anything like this before. There was nothing. So when you're coming from a a really low knowledge base, something is better than nothing. So I don't make any overblown claims about this case study. It's a case study. It tells one person's experience. There are things that we can learn from it nonetheless. And, And really the focus is on, you know, flagging that there needs to be consideration given to the long term for people who are considering having chest masculinization mastectomies, particularly when they're very young, and that when these people have babies, some of them will at a later date, they need to be provided with really good health care that supports them in any regret or grief that they experience around breastfeeding, that supports them in caring for their new baby even though they're not able to breastfeed. That was the purpose of the paper. Let's reflect on your academic journey, Carleen. So you've been in this career for around 20 years now and you're the position you are in at Western Sydney. So what has this journey taught you about yourself? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's taught me that I went into the right area of work because I really, I really love what I do and I find it you know, learning new things, conducting research, seeing my research move into policy and helping people directly. I find that really rewarding, Uh, helping people on an individual level where I'm able to do that. I also find that really rewarding and, and I find the process of developing research and writing papers to be a creative endeavour that I love. So... So I think, yeah, I think that's the main thing that I've learned. I really like it. I'm very glad that I decided to move into this type of work. And and you meet really good people too. So the internet is a wonderful thing. It didn't really exist very much when I was starting out, but now it does. And so you're able to collaborate with people all over the world. And I think that's fantastic. We've talked about Carleen, the academic. Let's go a bit deeper and talk about your own mental health journey. So firstly, just take me back to your early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Carleen we meet here? Well, I think, I mean, I think I had a pretty happy and well-supported early childhood. But when I was seven years old, my father died. So he had a brain aneurysm that burst and it was quite a shock to me. It wasn't necessarily a shock to the adults because it had, you know, there'd been some warning before he actually died and but I wasn't aware of it at the time. And that had quite a profound impact upon me. I think it really undermined my sense of security and safety and I don't think we even then, you know, we're talking about the seventies there. I don't even think we really thought about children and and mental health at that time but certainly I think it did have a very big impact upon me. I moved into sort of escapism via reading and so I did lots and lots and lots of reading which wasn't a bad thing for me to do academically so yeah so that was a mental health experience I guess as a young child. Later on Mm. I did you know I had, had a significant challenge after our second daughter arrived in our family so she had come to us 
well, so at that time we had our son who I'd given birth to and then we had adopted a daughter from China and uh, she had been in our family I think for about four or five years at that time and then we got a telephone call from our local child protection authority asking us if we would consider accepting placement for another little girl who'd been brought to Australia as an adopted child from China but whose parents had not been able to provide her with the care that she required and they were relinquishing her back into care. And at the time we said yes, that was fine. She was four years old. She'd been institutionalised in a not very good orphanage for all of her life. And I guess our hearts went to her and we went, well, of course we will. She's had a terrible time. We will provide her with the care that she needs. So she was placed with us and she was with us for about three and a half weeks and we actually, we were besotted with her. But her adoptive parents changed their minds and decided they wanted to have another go at parenting her and so she had to go back to them, which was devastating, was absolutely devastating. I I think the thing that was most difficult was we had enough information to know that they were unlikely to be capable of providing her with the care that she required. And we really felt like we were participating in the abuse of a child. So she'd come to us. She didn't have any language. We loved her. She seemed to like us too. And then we just had to take her back and we couldn't tell her that she hadn't done anything wrong. We couldn't tell her that we didn't want her to go. We couldn't communicate any of that to her. So it was it was really awful and I was very distressed for quite a long time after that happened. But um, about 20 months after she went back, we got a telephone call to say that they were putting her back into care again and did we want her back? <laughs> and we said yes. And she came back to us and... Uh, She was six years old at this time and speaking English, (laughs) reading fluently, quite a bright little spark. But there was still legal uncertainty. And so I think, you know, so after she came back, then I really suffered greatly from anxiety. It it turned out because we were worried that it might happen again, that she might have to go back. We really didn't know what was going to happen. But it turned out that she stayed. We did adopt her and 12 months after she came back to us and you know she's been with us ever since and she's 20 now and doing really really well but I think yeah I suffered quite badly from anxiety which I'd never experienced in my life before and so didn't really have any knowledge or skills for dealing with it and so it was quite some trial and error to work out what is the solution and how do we actually deal with this and how do I you know, how do I get through this and how do I live with this? And Trial and error. Drugs didn't work for me. That was a very bad idea. But, you know, I've since developed a mindfulness practice and I'm grateful for the experience, actually. I think it's been really helpful for me because I really hadn't had that history of mental health challenges or difficulty. But, you know, I was parenting children who with a history of trauma and I didn't really understand it before and now I've got a much better understanding. A bit of post-traumatic growth, I think. <laughs> before we dive into all of that in depth, I just want to go back to your childhood a little bit because 
losing your dad at such a young age, did that create a desire in you to be a mother earlier than you otherwise might have done? And also perhaps this additional, maybe not desire, but this additional willingness to adopt as well? I don't think so. The one thing I think it did instill in me was a really strong sense of the value and the importance of being honest with children. So I think when my father was ill and my family members knew that he was probably going to die and they told me that he was going to be okay and then he wasn't, I was one very angry seven-year-old at having been lied to. And I think that has stood me in good stead in parenting my children and particularly my daughters because, you know, there are things in their past that aren't good at all and honesty around that is really important and it's something that some adoptive parents really struggle with but it's not something that we've ever thought twice about because it just has been, you be honest, even if things are hard, you be honest about them and that's just the best way to go about it. So I think that that's where it's it's really influenced me. You often hear sometimes in families where one child is adopted or perhaps even in families where there's stepchildren or half-sisters and brothers and stuff like that, whereby there can be a, a divide created between the biological siblings and the adoptive siblings or, or the siblings who are not from both parents, for example, and there can be jealousy and there can be all sorts of divides that end up happening. How did you avoid that environment being created in your house? I think we were lucky in that my children were not very close together in age or arrival. So they're seven years apart each for the three children in terms of arrival. So my son was seven when my first daughter came and then it was seven years between her arriving and my last daughter coming. So they're seven years apart in terms of arrival and five years apart in terms of age. And I think that that has really prevented there from being any sort of sibling rivalry. In some respects, each was almost an only child because they had that separate space around them. So they were different developmentally. They were not wanting to do the same things at the same time. So I think that's been really helpful and you know they've got good relationships now so it's a good thing but tricky I look sometimes at people where they've got you know it seems to be quite common for people to have children two years apart and so they've got like a six-year-old a four-year-old and two-year-old and I'm like oh my goodness that just sounds like a nightmare to me (laughs) when you were forced to give your adoptive daughter back the first time You described this to me as an incomplete grief off air. Just tell me about this and also during this period, the triggering things which friends or acquaintances in your social network would say to you, sometimes perhaps from a well-meaning place, but it didn't actually come out that way. Yeah, so I think that sort of experience that we had there where we had this child that we really loved and that we wanted to care for and we weren't able to and we were putting her back into a situation we didn't think was good. So it is a, it's an incomplete grief because she was still alive. You know, she wasn't like you'd grieve if a child died. We had no interaction with her. We couldn't see her. We, 
you know, none of those things are in place. So there is that sort of, it's a very mixed sort of grief. It's also a disenfranchised sort of grief. So it's not something that you're supposed to be grieving. And I think lots of foster carers would be able to talk about this similarly in that you've got a child placed with you. It's your job to love them. You can't provide them with good enough care unless you absolutely love them. But then you also may need to give them back. You may also lose care of them and experience that grief. And other people don't necessarily understand that. And so we did have people saying things like, well, at least she wasn't with you for too long. Or, you know, you can't save every child. <laughs> it's just like, no, it's not like that. You don't understand. You're she not Thunderbirds. <laughs> no. No. Yeah, that's right. The love was real. The care was real. Our distress at what she was experiencing was immense. And the fact that we had had to do something that we didn't think was good for her, but we had no choice, that sense of powerlessness was really difficult. But like I say, I think I think there'd be lots of foster carers out there who understand, who've had people say to them, oh, you're too attached to them. There's no such thing as too attached. You know, it's really important and, I mean, it's a cliche, but people say, you know, that grief is the cost of love. The children need love, even if they're only with you with a short period of time. How long can you expect for a child, particularly a really young child, to live without love in their day-to-day life? It's not something that we should be wanting for them. We should want foster carers to love them, to be devoted to them while they're with them. But we then also need to support them if and when they move from their care and respect that grief and support that grief. We don't do a very good job of it, generally speaking. But there are some amazing carers out there who do it again and again and again. We only did it once. <laughs> but, uh, but lots of foster carers have children, you know, they love and lose on a regular basis. And I take my hat off to them. The irony of this whole situation, and you mentioned it a little there with mindfulness tools you would use to help you, is that, as you said to me off air, in order for you to be able to adopt, you're essentially not really allowed to have mental health issues or disclose those mental health issues. But this situation of adoption in that incomplete grief you spoke about was causing you intense and huge mental health difficulties. That's a very vicious cycle. So is this at the heart of the stigma here when it comes to this grief? And how did you deal with that? Well, it wasn't so much the grief that was the issue because I think that was understood. But it was later when our daughter came back to us permanently that I just had this terrible anxiety that really became a vicious cycle because I was like, I'm not allowed to be anxious. (laughs) I'm not allowed to have mental health difficulties because they won't allow us to adopt her if I'm struggling. And I think that's a very common, like I think it's common for adoptive parents. I think it's also common for foster carers to feel like they're not actually allowed to struggle because they've got the piece of paper that says that they're that certifies them as parents, you know, it means that you're you're supposed to actually be really good at this. And I know there has been some research done around this showing that actually it can be really, you know, it's it's an unreasonable expectation to think that people won't have struggles when they have 
you know, when they become parents sometimes, you know, a child's placed with them for the first time. We know that postnatal depression is really common amongst new mothers. Well, it can occur too for foster carers and for adoptive mothers as well, but it's not as well recognised and I think that idea that it shouldn't be happening is is not a good one. I mean, the people that we had around us, our caseworker, we knew her, she knew us, we were honest with her about it and she was like, well... You know, shit happens and, you know, it's how you deal with the shit and you're dealing with the shit fine. So, you know, so I'm not worried. But I was worried. I was quite anxious about it and it took a while to allow myself to not have perfect mental health (laughs) for a while. As you said, your daughters are fully grown women now and in a really good place in life. How proud are you of them as their mum given their start in life and the path that they could have gone down if they had stayed in care. Is that what the goal of adoption should be? I'm incredibly proud of them. I think that they are amazing young women and the things that they have been able to overcome, the things they've been able to achieve. I think they're probably going to have challenges their whole lives, but they have done so well and I think that I think for any parent of a child who has some sort of disability or trauma of some kind, you really appreciate the small things that other people might not even notice in their children because they're developing normally and you know and everything's going along just on its own for them. When you've got a child that really has to work really hard, you appreciate those victories so much more. I think those were good decisions. I don't regret at all any of it. And even all of the difficulty around our youngest daughter coming and going and coming back again. I appreciate all of the experiences that I had around that. I think it's it was very, very difficult at the time, but I don't regret any of it. Let's reflect on your mental health journey, Carleen. So similar question to the first topic. A, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to maybe the seven-year-old Carleen who had just lost her dad, the Carleen who was about to apply for that PhD, completely different to her undergrad in agriculture, or the Carleen who was about to make the decision to adopt her children, What would you say to her, knowing what you do now? Well, the young child, I think, I mean, I think I would have benefited from learning about mindfulness and meditation when I was seven. I think it might have made a whole lot of difference uh, later on. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think I would just say, you know, it will be okay. And, you know, honestly, probably my own history of trauma has helped me with parenting my own children. I don't think that any experience has to be universally negative. I think you can get positives out of most things. I look back at that and I think it was awful at the time, but I can see some, definitely see a lot of positives that have come from it in the way that they've shaped me. I think undertaking the PhD, yeah, that was a really good decision and I don't regret doing that either. I think I actually think a study in agriculture is a really good basis for any scientist because you have to learn about all the different bits that go into 
farming and there are lots of them. So you get good at putting together pieces of puzzles and I think that that has been really beneficial to me. As for what happened with my daughter, what would I say? I think I would just say that actually, you know, you're allowed to struggle. You're allowed to find this hard. There's something, you know, there would be something wrong if you didn't find this really difficult. Because I honestly think that that was the most difficult thing for me, was actually the idea that I was not supposed to feel like this. I was not supposed to be experiencing really difficult anxiety. So, yeah, that's what I would say. Our final topic of conversation, Carleen, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly... How is your mental health? I'm doing well, thank you, Freddie. I don't have any concerns at the moment. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Oh, look, I think that's all in the stuff post what happened with my daughter. So I would have been, gosh, I've got to do maths and think about how long ago it was. So I think I would have been about 40, which is quite old really to get that sort of awareness you're never too young or too old definitely Carleen so tell me now then about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health so who is it with what did you say and what impact did it have did it feel like on the one hand a very big moment and like a burden or weight have been lifted or on the other did it feel like something very easy and normal to do I'm trying to think about what that first conversation would have been, but I think it might have been I actually, you know, again, with what happened with my daughter when she went back, you know, I rang a a foster mother friend of mine and just, you know, who I knew, you know, and she's an amazing woman. She had actually gotten awards for her jurisdiction for being mother of the year at one point in time and just talking to her about it and her just being really honest with me about, you know, she'd had difficulties too. And I think that was really, you know, it didn't make everything go away, but it it did reduce some of my anxiety around going, okay, if she can have struggles, then I'm allowed to too. And what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Well, I don't I don't know about triggers, but I would say that I know that if I'm particularly run down, if I'm tired and a bit overwhelmed generally, that I'm likely going to have feelings of anxiety or feel a bit sad or Now I wouldn't actually, I don't sort of look at that and go, well, that's actually a problem, you know, like I'm having a mental health challenge. I'm more kind of like, well, this is my body dealing with the situation that I'm in just at the moment and this will sort itself on its own. There's not anything that I really need to do about it. It'll pass. I think that, you know, being less scared, you know, of having uncomfortable feelings I think has been quite a useful and beneficial thing for me You're going with the flow more and conversely then what positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better I know you've mentioned mindfulness so which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't so I do meditate and I, I think that that's been a useful thing but I also think that 
that meditation practice has in fact helped me to be more mindful generally and be more aware just in day-to-day kind of life. So I actually did the mindfulness-based stress reduction course, which is a very well-known course, got a good lot of evidence behind it, and I found that really beneficial. I also find that exercise is a helpful thing. So I like getting out there and and doing physical things and I started doing CrossFit this year and actually I'm surprised. I would never have thought that I would have found lifting weights to be such an enjoyable thing to do but I I do find it enjoyable. So some stuff in my mind and some stuff with my body. And what is the best book or as I call it mental health bible you've read for your mental health? Now it can be mental health or self-help related and if you can't think of a book, a album, a TV show, any piece of popular culture? Gosh, now that's a hard one. I've certainly read plenty of books. I might, you know, go back to a really old one, actually. It's not a mindfulness book, really, because mindfulness didn't really exist at the time. But it's a book written by uh, an Australian doctor, I don't know if you've heard of her, called Claire Weeks. And she wrote a book in the 1960s called, I think it was something like Self-Help for Your Nerves. It was about anxiety, but, you know, using old terminology. And I think a lot of what she wrote about has kind of since been shown through research to be quite true in that with anxiety, almost, you know, leaving it alone and just letting it be and getting on with it works quite well for a lot of people. Yeah, I don't know. Have you heard of her before? No, I haven't heard of her, but I would obviously recommend all the listeners to go and find out more if they want to. So yeah, that's a great suggestion. I've got two questions left. The first one is, if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Mm, I don't know. Maybe just you can do it. I don't know. I honestly don't know. Well, no, I'm, I'm actually thinking it's, you know, it's probably the, you know, the British World War II mantra of, you know, keep calm and carry on. There we go. That's a good enough one for us any. I've got one more question, <laughs> Carlene, which is, and it's a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think it's about people talking about it and not having to put the brave face forward all the time and being able to say, you know, this is, as a human being, you will have human emotions and you will have human difficulties and all of those things are okay because you're a human being. I think that that's a really important message to get across. Dr. Carlin Gribble, that's a great way to end it. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a massive thank you to Carlene for being my special guest and for letting me check in with her. I will put a link to where you can follow Carlene on social media in the show notes as always if you want to find out more about her journey and her work. 
As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about the podcast. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating Apple podcast. I haven't had one in about a year and a half, so please do consider doing that if you want to. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider also supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you can go to our link tree www.linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can support us. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.